Well, I was um, sent a list of questions that um, I should try and answer, and they also said, uh, try and make this as personal as you can. So, <laughs> so you might find it all too personal. But um, I have tried very hard to be, you know, to really reflect on my career and to try and be honest about why I think that I have um, managed to be as successful as I have been. I do think that what's interesting, though, about careers is that you never, ever think, nothing ever gets easier. Um, you never think that you're being successful. Every, you know, I can remember you know, when you first of all, it's just trying to get A-levels to get yourself into a university, and you know, the whole thing goes on, and it's, it just always seems like things are harder and harder and more and more difficult to do, actually. That's, that's my, my own view. Um, and I would say that I am, and I, and I don't even really want this to be negative at all, but I am somebody who, who definitely feels that there have been really sort of serious issues of sort of sexism both within academia and within the energy world that I work in um, and I think it's a whole lot easier now but when I was younger it really was quite tough and there really weren't very many women around then and um, I, I do think it is a lot easier now but so I'm just going to sort of talk to you about why I rather than somebody else managed to kind of get get through that. Um, and as I say, I, I have really tried to be quite honest about, about why I think I've, I've managed it. So there are these two kind of quite weird um, sort of areas that I'm going to talk about. One is about academia. But, yeah, I am an academic in energy policy, which is a, a, a terribly applied um, area. It, it, it's, it, the average minister, when they're t thinking about energy policy, is completely uninterested in some journal article, which is what my bosses want me to kind of write. They want to have two or three page short pieces which aren't necessarily referenced or give any kind of theoretical kind of context to them. Um, and uh, th th they are very, very different worlds. And, but I kind of have to inhabit both those worlds and that kind of creates um, certain issues for me. And I think that's, that's the thing about energy policy, the thing about climate change. It's... Um, very applied, it's very dynamic, things are changing all the time, and there are really very particular and diff different issues about that than there is as if you're looking at... You know, I was talking to a professor down where I work who teaches world history, and he really doesn't, you know, like over millions of years, and his lectures are exactly the same except for the last slide. Um, and I was thinking, that would, that would be really nice to do that. Anyways. Um, anyway, so I'm just going to be looking at those two kind of... Um, those two areas. Um, so I, I um, uh, uh, had a, a, my mother is a GP and she's a, she was a second generation woman who worked and there was no question as I was growing up that I would do anything other than have a career, really, that, there was no question about that. Um, I think that my, my brother was completely more important to, to my parents than I was because he was going to, I was going to get married and change my name, which of course actually didn't happen, but um, he, was, he was going to be the Mitchell that was going to carry on, and he was much more important in that sense. But nevertheless, I was always going to have a career, and those expectations, I'm sure, were terribly important for me. Um, I was very lucky that although I had um, you know, got into energy earlier on, and I'd been a journalist... I started working in renewables at the end of the 80s in 1990, just at the time in the UK when, the, when a, 
uh, renewable energy policy was happening in the UK. And I can remember going to my first meeting of uh, my PhD when the entire world of renewables in the UK was in that room, which was about 100 people. That was all the companies, all the people who were doing it, everybody in the UK who knew about renewables was in that room. And as that world has, has enlarged, as energy policy and climate change has enlarged, um, you know, I'm not saying that I I'm not worthy of this, but I definitely was in the right place at the right time. And so for me as an academic... It's been a, a growing world rather than a, a, a kind of a chain, you know, state world. And I've definitely um, done well from that. That's been very lucky for me. And I would also say that I have had a really tough academic father. Now, I would have loved to have had a nice father, a father that I liked, who looked after me and cared about me and played with me or even talked to me. But um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I had a very, very tough, tough academic, successful father, um, and in the early years, as I say, combining academia with this very sort of sexist, male-dominated energy world as it was, um, I think I just, they were the kind of men that I, that, they were like my dad, really, you know. They were these men that I was used to who weren't necessarily terribly nice, and I could deal with them and understand how they worked. And I really, really think that that's true. You're all looking at me in horror now, thinking, oh, God, how sad that she had a horrible dad. But, I mean, it is very sad in one way, but in another way, it's, I really do think that it has been good for my career in that sense. So that, this is what I'm just saying, that I've, you know, this is the truth. Um, and the other thing is I've absolutely never been overawed by successful people. You know... I, <coughs> You know, having been sort of, you know, my father was a very successful person, but, you know, it, it's very good not to be overawed by people, um, whether or not you, that they are ministers or they're sort of heads of large companies, whoever they are, they are all people. And you, um, you know, as I've sort of said at the end, really, treat everybody politely, but really only give your respect to people who deserve your respect. Because, you know, just because somebody is terribly senior doesn't mean to say that they deserve your respect and that you, you as a sort of, um, as I was, you know, very kind of young and didn't know anybody, <laughs> there's no reason why everybody isn't and shouldn't be treated with respect. And I think it's very important not to be overawed. Um, I don't have children for all sorts of reasons and I was married to an academic. And I, again, I think that that has made my life a lot easier as well because I haven't had to balance all sorts of things. I'm, I'm not in any way saying that that was what I would have necessarily wished to have had, but it definitely, in terms of my career, has uh, been probably easier, and I really love what I do. Still, after all this time, I really, really enjoy what I do. And at root, to be successful, you just do good work. In the end... You just have to do good work, and it's an awful lot easier to do good work if you're really interested in it than if you're not. So I've been very, very lucky that I've worked in that area. Now, how many, how many minutes have I gone so far? That's my first slide, actually. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to have to skip right to the... Uh, right, six and a half. So we say, so really, we're, we're going to have to... Okay, it's not working. I'm just pressing the down key here. Oh, okay. Is this alright? I think so. I can't remember what it was. What was before? <laughs> Let's do, do, do we just...
Okay, let's work on this one. Oh, no. Okay, so um, I just want to say as an academic, uh, again, being older, um, I didn't really have to worry about the research assessment exercise, which is the way that we academics um, are, you know, are assessed. Um, and I really didn't take much notice of them at all, although they started in 1992. <coughs> I didn't really worry about them at all. Um, I do think that in certain ways having an RAE and a REF whereby you're assessed on publications and money means that you as an academic uh, will get a job if you have more money and you have more publications than a guy that comes along. <coughs> the, the real problem with that is that for many uh, women, the sort of thing behind that is uh, whether or not you have the time or are prepared to spend the time and give up all those other things in order for you to um, uh, get more publications and get more money. And I, I, the, it definitely, the way that we're assessed definitely um, has incentives for those people who are very individualistic and very selfish and simply never spend any time whatsoever at all doing anything for anybody else. Um, all their time just writing their own publications. And if uh, you're not like that or you, you on principle don't believe you should live like that or whatever, then um, you know, academia is anyway very, very tough in Britain. We have this very, very competitive way of... It's completely not how non-academics view academia anymore. Very, very kind of tough. It kind of suits people who are prepared to really get in there and fight. It doesn't necessarily suit people who don't like to do that, and it certainly is not good if you are socially minded. And then if you have children and you're not, uh, you know, children even with a partner who is, uh, you know, really uh, spending 50% of the time with you, um, it will be harder for a period of time. There's no leeway given for any sort of bits of time in your life. Um, and if you don't have that, then obviously it'll be even harder. And that's something, I think, that needs to really be helped, should be sorted out. Um, okay, and then just sort of looking at the energy world, um, you know, the energy industry is still terribly male-dominated, uh, based in sort of technology, engineering, and economics. And I think that I kind of suffered, really, in the early 90s, a complete double whammy, because I was a woman who isn't a man, who isn't a, an engineer, who is not, you know, not an economist. Um, going out to these kind of places and, and arguing for a sustainable future. Um, and so we'd be kind of going to conferences which were about the conventional energy system, which is mainly fossil fuel dominated, nuclear dominated, large centralised systems, and arguing for a different sustainable system. So I was sort of treated... I have some of these memories are just seared on my mind as just being, you know, the most unpleasant, awful times when I was treated with, you know, just, like, just such an idiot and just treated with such disrespect. And it was just, you know, really, 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 really unpleasant. Um, and I cannot really get across just how tough it was at the beginning. And in particular, actually, I had an Institute of Electrical Engineering conference. Oh, God, I mean, I will never forget that until the day I, was, day I die, really, as just one of the most unpleasant... You know, and the things that I was saying there, which was 1994, are so completely accepted and commonplace now. Nothing I was saying was in any way, you know, 
It was just, but nevertheless, you know, literally sort of howls of derision, really. It's just awful. Anyway, so um, to me, it was me and Brenda at the beginning, really, arm in arm, the two of us. And uh, that was very kind of um, really, really difficult. Um, And just sort of carried on with gritted teeth. And one of the reasons why I support things like this and why I've set up a master's down at Exeter is because I you know, you should not have to go through this kind of thing to be able to do what you believe in in life or want to do. You should not have to do um, what I had to do in order to kind of get to where I've got today. You really shouldn't. Um, And I often think to myself, why was it that I did what I did? And it honestly was really to do with my father and beating my father. You know, it was proving my father wrong. And, you know... I'm pleased I've done it. I have a great career. It's all great. But really, it's all through those underlying issues than than before. Okay, so now I'm going to just skip right through all of this. um, So gender balance, definitely in the past, but it's difficult to know. Okay. So if there's one message that I want to give to the current leaders, um, it is this thing on on greater focus on work-life balance. If you want to have a sustainable world, you know, we're talking globally here, and we're talking about sustain, sustainable in the sense of um, environmentally sustainable, but also uh, socially equitable in the justice sense, then um, we have to ensure that po- poverty reduction is happening around the world. And if we export, if the rich Western countries export our consumerist economic model to the rest of the world, whilst we're trying to reduce our carbon emissions, all we're doing really is sort of going down and up escalator. We have to change a different model of life um, that is uh, still one that has a good good standard of living, but is um, one that is more about work-life balance, really. And everywhere in the West, we should be trying to put in place sectors that have a work-life balance. And the university sector in Britain is absolutely the antithesis of that. It is, it is absolutely not about work-life balance or sustainability. And um, so there's one message I would sort of give on, on whatever level you like of, of leader, it's about work-life balance being important. Uh, I have... You know, huge messages of encouragement, really. It is a lot better now. Um, If government takes climate change and social justice seriously, then there will be more jobs and there will be more opportunities. But really, you know, have confidence in yourselves. Um, I sort of took this decision that I was not going to try... I was not going to be like a man in this man's world. I was going to be a woman in a man's world. And... And I'm really pleased that I did that. And I think that definitely there are times when it was not a good idea. But, you know, have confidence in yourselves. Don't be overawed by anybody. You know, really don't be overawed by anybody. You are as good as anybody out there. And then apply for anything that you want to. Um, I cannot tell you the amount of times people have said to me, oh, no, you're too young, you're too junior, you're too this, you're too that. Um, And it never stops. It never stops. It never, ever stops people saying that to you. Don't apply for that government position or don't apply for that international position. Don't do this. Take no notice, just apply. 
Just do it. Just go for it. And finally, my three wishes for achieving positive change. I mean, these are big things. I mean, one of them is the stronger government legislation to increase equality of, of women as measured by, as we've heard, you know, women. Uh, there are all sorts of other measures of equality. I'm not in any way saying that these are the, way, the ways. I don't, I don't wish to bring everything down to these sorts of measures of success. There are many ways to measure success. But, you know, num- professor, a number of women who are professors, senior administrators in universities, people on company boards and so forth. It should be a 50-50 society. Um, I think it would be great if we could have some sort of support packages for, for universities and research councils to enable women to have kind of flexible working. I mean, I do, I do think this should, should actually be about family-friendly things, which we've sort of talked about. But, but nevertheless, um, you know, we have this research assessment exercise. You take a year out to have a baby. Uh, you know, you're probably on probation for five years. If you have a baby in that five years, you're still going to be assessed on those five years. Um, you, it would be great if we could have it as a six-year package or something, which allows you to take a year out and still be assessed in the same way, that sort of thing. And really, within uh, universities, RAEs, um, you know, we just want to have a completely different university government policy um, in place. Now, I'm sorry that I um, missed out all the kind of bit in, in between, so I, I hope that you kind of got the gist of all of that. And um, it is my very great pleasure to be here today. Okay, hello. I'm afraid I didn't organize uh, the, the, the answers to your questions so well as Catherine, but I will try during my presentation to leave you my, um, to share with you my message. At least I hope you will, you will understand what is my motivation for uh, doing this work, working with uh, uh, wave energy. Can the oceans turn our lights on? Uh, that's the, the question in my presentation. Uh, but before going to this, uh, to this uh, topic, uh, please let me just introduce my institution. I started working in 1993 in wave energy at the university. At that time, I heard uh, at my, I uh, had a degree on civil engineering, and I just, in my last year, I just heard about wave energy very briefly in a, a presentation, and I, I thought, I want to work on this. And I heard that there was a, a teacher in the university uh, developing a European-funded project related with this subject to install a power plant in Pico Island, which is uh, in, the, in, the, in the Azores archipelago. And uh, I'm, I was born in the Azores, so I thought this is a perfect job for me. And I just went to talk with this teacher, and I, I simply said, I would really love to work on this, uh, on this uh, subject. What can I do? What is the, the work that uh, uh, I could uh, do here in, uh, with your team? And there were some experimental tests uh, to be done. And he said, there is this, uh, uh, this tests uh, if you want to do this, starting to do this. And that's what was the beginning of my uh, career. In 2004, uh, I've been working in the university until 2004. And at the time, we saw that there was a, a possibility to create an association, a private non-profit association uh, dedicated to uh, wave energy. 
And uh, 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 here you can see in this slide uh, our present associates, which are project developers, engineering and construction firms, the two Portuguese utilities and research institutes. And we work now in different areas related with wave energy, environmental issues, politics and economics, dissemination uh, activities, monitoring activi activities, feasibility studies and band benchmarking studies and um the reason why I introduced it by uh, my uh, institution, the Wave Energy Center, is to show you that we have a completely uh, re uh, gender balance. 50% uh, men, 50% uh, women. Uh, thank you. <laughs> it's unusual, <laughs> but we are very proud of it. It's a very healthy environment, I can assure you. Um, so, going to the ocean. Uh, in the ocean, uh, you have waves. Waves reach the coast, all coastlines. So, it's what you know most because you experience the waves. But there are also tidal, uh, tidal energy associated with tidal branch and also tidal stream you can find in straight uh, channels like in the Strait of Messina between Sicilia and Italy. There is also OTEC, ocean, ocean thermal energy conversion. The temperature differential between cold water from the deep ocean and warm surface water. There is salinity gradient. Whenever a river uh, reaches the ocean, energy is released, and you can use this energy to produce electricity. There are hydrothermal vents, uh, geological fissures in the deep uh, ocean. You uh, energy is released and can be used. Microalgal cultures to produce biofuel, which is ma marine biomass, and wind offshore. Wind offshore, the resource, resource is the wind, of course, but if you want to go too deep uh, to install turbines in, the, in, in, di in deeper waters, you have to, be, to install these turbines in floating structures. So you will deal also with the ocean. So there is huge resource. And here you can see on the, the right top where these ener energetic areas are concentrated. The red, red, red bands are the areas where you have more energy. And you can see that in Europe, the Atlantic Arc, Arc uh, uh, Portugal, Spain, UK, Ireland, Norway, uh, there is m uh, a very good resource. And tidal range is more site-specific. And OTEC, um, it's, uh, you can have a good resource on tropical areas. So there is different technologies to, exp to explore all these resources. I will concentrate my talk in waves because it's what I know most. Um, there is also, just for waves, there is a wide range of technologies. I will not explain in detail these technologies, but there are at present something around 50, 100 different concepts proposed. And uh, basically, uh, they can be uh, on the shoreline, they can be on deeper waters, they, they can be completely submerged, or they can be com uh, surface piercing, they can oscillate with surge, or they can oscillate with heave. Uh, there is no generic type uh, proving to be more successful than another. It's not like a wind. We don't know what will be the convergence, if it will converge for one technology or if we still will have several different technologies. 
this wave energy technology is in the early stage of development and some are reaching uh, full scale. But only a few reach uh, the sea. You can see here some devices that were installed in the sea. Some of them just for short periods of time. Some didn't succeed at all. Others have problems and the teams are pursuing with the development. So what are the barriers, the challenge? Um, the the uh, biggest uh, challenge is jumping from the laboratory testing to the real sea testing because in the laboratory testing it's quite easy to find appropriate funds to do some tests to optimize your geometry and to get an estimate what you can produce and to see if it works but then you have to go to the real sea and you need a lot uh, amount of money to do that. And here there is a, a many steps, many barriers uh, that you will face before your technology read, uh, before you can reach uh, the mature, uh, mature industry. I will just mention uh, two or three, public acceptance. It's very important to get people aware what is wave energy about. It's clean, renewable energy. This is our message that the Wave Energy Center try to explain to public uh, communities uh, which deal with the sea. Uh, there are other problems, grid uh, connection. The cable to test the device, the cable is very uh, expensive just for testing a device. And also in the, uh, the communities around uh, close to the coast, sometimes they have a, a weak uh, grid uh, uh, line, grid electrical line. So for, uh, for the expansion of wave energy, this will be a difficulty. Um, in a European level, what is being doing? Uh, how um, how uh, barriers are being uh, overcome? Uh, this is an example of what uh, uh, several countries try, uh, uh, started to do, to create pilot zones. A pilot zone is an area where, uh, with a streamlined procedure, how you can install in the well-defined procedure, how you can install your devices, what is the environmental impact assessment study that you need to do. And uh, some of these uh, test areas, they provide the cable so the developers uh, will not have this, uh, this cost. This is a very w a good way to start developing uh, wave energy. And also, there, uh, there is traditional uses of the sea, navigation, fishery, military uses, oil and gas exploitation, and now ocean energy is a new area in this field. So uh, it is important to explore possible synergies, and it is important also that the governments uh, prepare um, plans uh, how to use the, sp the maritime space. Uh, let me just finish by ex uh, telling you a brief uh, history, the ocean exploration challenges. Once upon a time, in the 15th century, the age of exploration and discovery, uh, it was an age in which European sailors and ships left the coastal waters and embarked in their adventure on the vast green sea of darkness. It was very risk. Uh, there was monsters, there was holes uh, in, the, in, the, in the sea where ships disappeared. But all, country, all countries, continents were discovered. And now, after 500 years, we, have, uh, we are in the beginning of a new era, an era of a new electricity age. 
and there is so much challenges. We have to discover again how to use the energy of the ocean. Uh, in 1999, Pico Plant, my motivation, the, pro the project that motivated me for this work, uh, was built in Pico Island. And um, there was so much difficulties, more than you can imagine. And only in 2005, it was possible to grid connect this plant. And now it's operating, not in a, a, very, uh, not in a, a very normal way, but in a regular way, with all, always with maintenance strategies, trying to have the plant working. In 2004, the world's first submerged prototype in Portugal. Uh, this uh, was a technology from a Dutch company. Uh, it was very difficult. Uh, they, didn't, uh, uh, they didn't imagine how difficult it was to put this device for, uh, 45 meters high in a water to submerge it completely in a water of 60 meters depth. Uh, it took so much time to do it, and the plant just worked for a few uh, months. Uh, and they learned a lot with uh, the technical problems that they have. Uh, again, in 2008, Pelham is the three snakes in the Atlantic Ocean. You probably heard about this project. It was a project from a, a Scottish company, Pelham is Wave Power. It was the first company that secured a commercial contract to install a multi-unit uh, technology. Um, the, the machines, uh, it was a very difficult uh, procedure as well, and the machines were, uh, were tested during a few months and then returned to the, uh, to the coast. And many people were disappointed with Russian energy in general. But I would say it is normal because we are not talking about standard technology. Even standard technology has some these uh, problems. We are talking in, of innovative technology. And when we talk with, uh, about innovative technology, uh, we, uh, we deal with failures. And uh, the success is based on small steps. So you have now the impression that ocean energy exploitation has not been a huge success uh, story. But you all know a bit of the history of the, the car. And uh, it has been a long history be be uh, before we could go to a shop and, uh, and ask for a, a, a model and uh, with a certain color. And uh, also wind energy. Uh, in the beginning, there were many, many failures. And now wind energy is going to the ocean. So wave energy is following the same, the similar uh, path as uh, uh, wind uh, energy. In fact, we are 20 years uh, uh, later of uh, wind energy. So my final remarks is that now we have an emerging European industry in wave energy. When I started in 93, I just remember about three, four companies working in this area. It was on the academic field, wave energy research. And uh, now we have uh, 50 different technologies in 50 different uh, companies, one company behind each uh, concept being proposed. Demonstration of activities requires substantial amount of capital. This is not only for wave energy, for demonstration activities in general, but particularly wave energy deal with a strong environment. And ocean energy requires support, consistent policies and commitments. And ocean energy 
can be part of a strategy for combating climate change and securing the energy supply. So will the ocean light our future? I believe so. Thank you, and I uh, will leave this message. The future is what we make of it. Thank you. Okay, so in the next few minutes, um, I'm going to try to um, answer a question which I think is both important and really interesting, and that question is, why are so few females contributing to the peer-reviewed literature in climate change? And really, what can we do to increase the number of female contributors in climate research? Um, and I'll start off by explaining why I think this is such an interesting question. Um, if I can figure out how to move down. Here we go. Okay, so... <laughs> Basically, there's a dictum in academia, publish or perish, and that pretty much sums up why um, peer-reviewed publications are so important. Um, I mean, in short, if you're an academic, your publication record is... It's, it's basically, you know, how your community will, will judge your credibility. Um, and it's also, in large part, what will get you tenure. So I guess if you're going for any, you know, career in scientific, in, in any, I suppose, aspect of academia, really, um, your publication record is, you know, it's basically your, your ticket to the next step. So that's why peer review is so important. And one of the reasons it's really interesting to me is because, well, for two reasons, really. First, because of my current role, and second, because of my own history in academia. So, firstly, um, I've just recently been appointed as the editor-in-chief of Nature Climate Change, which is a peer-reviewed journal, which is being launched by the publishers of the, uh, the journal Nature, and it's coming out in print next April. Um, the... the I suppose aim of the journal really is to publish original peer-reviewed research across the social and natural sciences um, and really it aims to be the world's leading journal both in climate impacts but also in the um, implications of climate change for society, for policy, for the world at large. So I'm really interested in you know, who's publishing in climate research but also um, it's interesting to me because I was an academic at one point and I made the decision to leave academia. So, um, why did I leave academia? Um, well, I left seven years ago. I suppose this is interesting partly because, um, you know, as editor of a climate journal, most of my peers now are males in their 50s and 60s. Um, Yes, they're usually white males, um, and in fairness to them, most of them have full-time professorships at um, prestigious research institutes, whereas I no longer do research. Um, but seven years ago, I was working as a fisheries scientist in a research institute here in the UK, and it was my first postdoc position. Um, I was fresh out of my PhD, and I was looking partly at the impacts of climate change on fisheries. Um, but I suppose, so I suppose in some respects, really, you know, my career should have just been budding at that point. But I looked around me, and more importantly, I looked above me, and I couldn't really see anywhere to go. In the, in the institute where I was at, we had a staff of about 450 people, and I suppose it was probably split evenly between administrative and communication staff and researchers. And I could only think of one person in the institute who was female and doing research and at a higher grade than I was at. So I didn't really have any mentors, and I think to some extent I found that quite disillusioning. Um, I mean, ultimately, my decision to leave research was uh, I had this um, overwhelming passion to communicate science rather than to actually do the research. Um, 
but I think the glass ceiling was certainly an issue for me and I know that it's also an issue for many women. What's interesting is that most women who leave academia do so at exactly the same point that I did and that point is just before they get their first permanent position. So there's this kind of postgraduate brain drain that happens in between. Um, here in green is various steps of education. In blue there's various ranks you know, in the career path um, and you can see that between um, the, you know, the the transition from PhD to associate professor, there's quite a drop-off in women. And this, um, these statistics are just for geosciences, females in geoscience in the US. But this does actually translate to some other disciplines too. Um, and what's interesting is obviously this kind of carries on up, um, you know, with various ranks throughout the career um, pathway. And, you know, in geosciences in the US, what you see is that 26% of the assistant professorship positions are filled by women, but when you get to the point of full professors, only 8% of those positions are filled by women. Um, and what's you know, possibly even more worrying is the fact that geoscience compares quite favorably to other hard sciences, as it were, like uh, physics and engineering, even though they do com it compares, I suppose, uh, there are other areas that compare more favorably, such as chemistry and bi biological sciences. Um, so I started off with geosciences really because I thought, um, you know, well, who's to, who works on climate research? And I think while it's probably fair to say that climate change was once the domain of geoscientists, that's really no longer the case, that the more we've realized that climate change is a problem that needs solutions, the more and more um, diverse academics are, are turning their attention to this problem. So now we have psychologists working on climate change and engineers and sociologists and in some ways I think that's quite good for the gender balance within the climate research community because typically if you look at the social sciences, if you look at humanities and arts for example at the postgraduate level, um, more than half of the students are female and in the social sciences about half of the students are female at the postgraduate level and that compares quite well to say engineering and technology which only has 25% of female students um, at that level and you know then again this carries on up the ranks um, to some extent so in the humanities and social sciences um, they have more females at the level of full professorship than say engineering for example um, and these, these figures come from a study that was commissioned by the European Union last year. It's called the She Figures. So, so I guess what I wanted to know was how this translates to publication rates. And what's interesting is that um, there's a lot of conflicting evidence here. There was a report that came out by the um, National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. last year, and they basically showed that at the level of tenure across all academia, not just um, physical sciences, basically females were publishing a comparable amount to their male counterparts. But there was a recent thesis um, that basically showed that female academics published 20% less than their male counterparts. And the reason I'm flagging this up, I think this is interesting because um, it said it may be biased by a few high-publishing individuals. And I think that's a well-known phenomenon in academia where you have some people who are just really prolific at publishing papers. Um, and in this particular study, um, prolific publishers were people who you know, maybe authored more than 10 papers a year. And 89% of those in this study were male. And I think... You know, and certainly from looking at climate research myself, I think that most of the really prolific publishers are people um, who are, you know, writing, who are, the people who are writing more than 10 articles a year are mostly male. Um, 
uh, what's interesting is we don't actually collect gender statistics on our authors at Nature. Um, but I think from taking a cursory glance through the journal and possibly through any physical sciences journal, it's easy to see that most of the papers are authored by men. Um, and what's also interesting is because those people are first authors on the peer-reviewed content, that kind of feeds through to commissioned content. So um, a lot of what I do is I commission reviews and I commission opinion pieces from academics. And I suppose as a commissioning editor, one of the things that I do is I try to get authors who, who are experts but also who have published recently. So if more men are publishing recently, then more men end up writing the opinion pieces as well and writing the reviews. So it kind of carries on throughout the journal. Um, and although, as I said, we don't actually officially collect gender statistics at Nature, I decided to have a look at um, some of the stuff that I've commissioned while I've been at Nature. I've been there for the last three years, commissioning um, basically content online, um, largely from academics, but also from journalists. And I just looked, this is just content that I commissioned from academics, and it's opinion only, so it doesn't include reviews or anything else. Um, and what's interesting is in 2009, I commissioned 31 opinion pieces, and not one of them had a female author. So it's, this um, symposium has maybe taken, maybe taken a closer look at the gender imbalance in my own commissioning, but I think that that's just par for the course in terms of, you know, most of the people who are publishing are male, so most of the people I liaise with are, are men. Um, and I also, so then I, I suppose I started to ask, God, does that mean the climate debate is largely taking place between men? Um, and I, I thought it would be interesting to look at other fora um, outside of publishing, so I phoned the IPCC and asked them if they had any statistics, and they said they didn't collect gender statistics they either. They do, do they? Okay, well, their press office told me they didn't. <laughs> but anyway, um, so what I did was I just I had to look on their website anyway, and um, what I found was that the, um, the Bureau of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has 31 members, only five of whom are women. And I think, you know, in general, it's probably fair to say that, well, I think it's very fair to say that female voices are heard less often in the discussions on climate change, whether those discussions are taking place in, you know, in the peer-reviewed literature, in op-eds, in newspapers, or in the blogosphere, where, to be honest, a large part of the debate on climate change is taking place on blogs, and most bloggers are male. Um, so I suppose, you know... To some extent, you can say, well, if there aren't that many female academics studying climate research, what can we do about it? Um, but some people have suggested that it might be a bit more complicated than that and that, that perhaps there is a bias against women in the peer review process itself. Um, so I guess that the implication is that a reviewer on getting a, a paper from a female author would just select not to send that out to review, whether consciously or unconsciously, this person would, um, subconsciously, uh, would, um, you know, bias against female authors and unfortunately there's little hard data on this actually and very little outside of the field of biomedical research. Perhaps the most extensive study uh, which doesn't actually refer to the peer-reviewed literature but looks at peer-reviewed grant applications was by Marsh and Bornman last year and they basically analysed over 350,000 grant applications uh, from eight countries and they found that there was no effect of the gender of the applicant on the peer review of their grant proposals. So um, it's hard to know whether this actually translates uh, through to peer review in journals. Unfortunately, there isn't much systematic evidence for gender bias. There have been a few small studies, but they haven't really found anything concrete. Um, and as I said, there's no statistics for, uh, collected for nature research journals. 
So I guess the jury is kind of still out on that. But on the evidence we have, there's no real systematic evidence for gender bias. So I wondered about solutions. Um, you know, if there is no gender bias and there are very few climate researchers out there, you know, what can I do as the chief editor of a climate research journal? You know, what, is there anything I can do to bring more awareness to this um, or to do something about it in my own work? And I guess the first thing to point out is that I suppose I anticipate that nature climate change will have a higher contribution of female authors simply for the reason that... Um, you know, it includes social sciences, and that's a first for any nature journal. Its sister journals, such as Nature Physics, Nature Materials, uh, will definitely have more male authors. So I think that that's probably going to happen anyway. But I also wondered about the whole issue of mentorship and role models, and I found this very interesting statistic um, also from the U.S. National Academies report last year, which said that... Um, if there's one female on a board um, where, you know, a board that gives out grant, grant applications, grant proposals and evaluates them, um, then there are more likely to be women in the applicant pool. And what I wondered is if there are women on the editorial board of a journal, are women then more likely to submit their papers to that journal? I suppose this is like you could think of it as a working hypothesis. I don't really know whether that's true. Um, but what's interesting as well is that most of the editors of journals are male. And there was a, um, a study this year in a journal called Frontiers in Ecology and Environment. And they, had, they did a study including, I think, 450 respondents, and they looked at 155 research journals, and they basically found that most editors in that field are male too. So, you know, I just I wonder about that. It's something that I, uh, you know, I don't know the answer to, but perhaps more research could be done on it. Um, and one thing that I hadn't considered at all before being asked to speak at this symposium is whether we ought to think about collecting gender statistics um, on nature climate change. So we have a system where, you know, if you submit a paper, you basically enter in some what we call relevant data. And at the moment, um, you know, n none of our journals actually collect any information on gender statistics. But I wondered whether it would be a good thing to do this on nature climate change, simply because, the, you know, the information might be um, it might be of interest to social scientists, but also at least we kind of have some idea. Because at the moment, I, I found when I was preparing this talk, some of my statements seemed very qualitative. Like I could say, well, if I look at any one issue of nature, I know myself that most of the authors are male, but I couldn't tell you what proportion are male, what proportion are female. So I think those data would be um, great to have, and that's something that I feel committed to doing on this journal. Um, and the other thing, really, I suppose, is just awareness in choosing referees and authors for opinion and review p pieces. Um, I mean, obviously, I think what's important to say is that um, always we'll choose authors who are the very best in their field, and our objective will always be to publish the best science and to have the, the strongest opinions and the most interesting viewpoints. But I think that we could bring more awareness to female authors, and that's something that, um, that I'd like to do. So um, I'd just like to finish with three wishes. Um, I suppose, well, you know, first of all, I would like to see more females in high-level positions, particularly, I think, as lead authors of the IPCC reports. And the reason I choose the IPCC um, is because... I suppose in putting this information together, I found it quite difficult to find out exactly, like how exactly do you find, define climate research in that, you know, there are so many areas. There's humanities, there's social sciences, there's engineering, technology, natural sciences. 
Um, and I suppose the IPCC encompasses all of those things um, in producing their reports. So, you know, it would seem if there were more women on those, um, leading those reports, then that should be, if it was a true reflection, of course, it should be a true reflection of the breakdown of the um, gender balance within the community. And I think that that would be a really good indicator of the, the number of women in the climate research community. Um, obviously, I'd like to see more climate science papers with females, particularly as first authors. I would really like to see that. Um, and I think, you know, particularly I'd like to see more female voices, um, you know, giving strong opinions and really getting engaged in the debate. Um, because as I said, I think on the blogosphere, all of this is, you know, most of it's really being discussed by men with a few exceptions. Like Judith Curry um, is one female scientist who's really getting in there and getting involved in the debate on climate change. But, you know, she really stands out because um, I can't think of anyone else who's doing that. She's a woman. So um, I would really like to see that. So those are my three wishes, and yeah, oh, thanks for listening, and I'd be happy to hear any feedback. Thank you. First and foremost, I'd uh, just like to thank you, Cynthia, for your invitation to come and speak, and I hope I didn't blow your budget, because when the invitation came, I was uh, working up the road at Cambridge, and then I got transferred by the UN to, uh, to Nairobi. So uh, thank you very much for your generosity in bringing me here, despite the fact that I'm now back in, in Kenya. One thing that Cynthia didn't say in, uh, in her opening comments in terms of the guidelines that we were given as, uh, as speakers was that we were asked to be a little bit thought-provoking. So I think that's why she put me last, because <laughs> when she saw my presentation, it perhaps is a little bit off the wall, a little bit uh, uh, not strictly according to... to um, the, the guidelines that we were given, but I tried to weave everything in, and uh, I hope you'll find it at least interesting and, and thought-provoking. Oh, wrong button. It seems we're all making the same mistake. Uh, the down arrow button. There we go. Okay. The framework that I'm going to use is something that I dusted off from my PhD dissertation uh, far too many years ago. Um, it was almost 20 years ago now, so Catherine, <laughs> I felt very nostalgic when you were talking. <laughs> Um, but my, my professor said to me at the time, he said, Monica, just tell a good story. And every good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's what I'm hoping to weave together uh, and, and at least provide something a little bit interesting to you and then end off with the, uh, the three wishes. Okay, the foreword, the context. Um, you'll notice that there are no UN logos on any of my slides. And I have to put in a disclaimer here because I'm not speaking on behalf of the UN. I'm not taking an official UN position and, and saying well, this is the UN position. But um, I am taking in all the experience that I've had in working with the UN over many years, also with other organizations in the past in uh, developing countries as well as in uh, first world countries. And I just want to help you or remind you that the UN in context, when people say, why doesn't the UN do this? Why doesn't the UN go into Darfur and sort out the problem in Darfur and whatnot? You have to remember that, that you know, the, the difference between the UN and a government is that you know, you've got one government. You've got a new sort of government of sorts in, in the UK now, and it has a bureaucracy. But the UN essentially is a collection of 192 governments, the UN, and its bureaucracy. So you're dealing with trying to keep about 192 member countries across all the 42, 43 programs, organizations, funds, specialized agencies happy. Okay? You have to keep all these people happy and hear their voices and hear what they have to say and provide the kind of 
of services and you know, needs that they are asking you for. So it's a, it's a pretty big job. But the one really useful purpose in my years at the UN that, the, that I believe that the UN has that essentially no one else has is that it keeps 192 governments and stakeholders talking. Okay? And there's a huge amount to be gained by keeping people at the table and keeping them talking about every issue you can possibly think of. Climate change is one, gender is another. Climate change and gender is another. Everything under the sun that you can think of, the UN eventually gets around to talking about, the UN being the member states of the world, with a few exceptions. So, the beginning, climate change. We all know it's the uh, dominant environmental topic. We've heard a lot about it already. Uh, I'm not in any way going to try and um, recap the body of work that the UN does and that the UN commissions in climate change. But suffice to say that there's an awful lot happening out there. The UN is not a research organization, but the UN commissions research projects to be undertaken to serve a particular purpose. So we're talking about climate change, and, and yes, it is the, the dominant uh, environmental topic of our time. How did we get here? Well, I, did, I said I wouldn't recap, but I'm going to kind of recap. <laughs> so if we look at the whole sort of issue around this, this kind of planet that we live on, um, the sort of space that we inhabit in the universe, it took about sort of four billion years of evolution to get us where we are today, that we can enjoy this kind of environment. Um, but it took us only about 200 years to fundamentally change this planet's atmosphere. Kind of putting in a little bit of perspective there. And we, as a single species on this planet, have been an entirely encompassing planetary altering force. Okay? If you look at the IPCC reports, if you look at the Stern report that tried to put an economic uh, face on climate change, you know, it's, it's, it's undeniable that we, as a single species, have altered this planet in a very short space of time, given its evolution. And how did we do it? In a nutshell, and apologies to all the scientists out there, and I'm a scientist myself, we essentially dug up, pumped out, cut down, and burned everything we could find in the pursuit of a better way of life, energy. Okay? We really did, and we're still doing all that sort of thing, to provide us with the energy that we need to fuel the various types of economies that we have around the world. And society, at the same time, was also being shaped over the millennia. And we can go into a long sort of social discourse around that. But society was also changing along with industrialization and along with, with just you know, people's affluence and people's way of doing things in an you know, uh, evolving um, planet and evolving lifestyle. So my sort of question to myself and my colleagues is, well, can we change the planet again? I mean, we did it once. Um, we can probably do it again. But we need to do it with the collective efforts of everybody in this room and everybody out there in terms of changing it in a different direction. And some of the things that the UN Environment Program is trying to do through the TEEB report, which you may have heard of, uh, TEEB standing for the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, and the Green Economy Initiative that UNIP is promoting very strongly, is to say we have the chance to change things in a different direction from an economically um, valuable contribution to society and do things in a different way. Can we change society to make those kinds of changes that we want to in a particular direction? So now I get to the middle. Well, the climate for gender and change. So we've spent a lot of time today talking about gender issues in, in sort of climate change and technology and, and the academic and the research field. And you know, I left academia quite some years ago 
But I never really left the science field. I've always used science everywhere I've want, gone in every sort of organization I've worked for. And even with the UN, now that I'm in a managerial position and you know, not doing sort of benchtop research anymore, but commissioning work, working with young scientists who are trying to, to make a difference in the field of the environment that, that the UN Environment Program works on. But when I looked at a lot of the reports, they started looking like this. Okay? When we talk about gender and gender equity, it basically came out women, 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 women. And I thought, hmm, that's an interesting observation. Why are we, why are we espousing gender equity and gender equality in the classic definitions, and then we go on and talk about women? Now, I understand very clearly you know, the, the, that women are vulnerable and in climate change and, and poverty. They all have impacts on the most vulnerable sections of society, which happen to be women, which happen to be children and youths and the elderly. And it almost seems like it's everybody else except able-bodied men between the ages of 15 and 55. Um, so why are we missing out on, on part of the equation was my question when I looked at all these reports. So I asked myself, well, is there a climate change and gender issue? Um, I don't believe that it's a woman's issue or women's issue alone, but it disproportionately affects women and children and the elderly. Um, so I think there is an absolute need to look at the special requirements and needs of this group of, of, of society, if you will, and the needs that they have under a changing world. The evidence is abundant and unequivocal but it's how we engage at the societal level that can make change happen. We can't just do it in segregated little bits and pieces as far as I'm concerned. And actually, I think we need to engage the other 50% uh, because the agents of change cannot be just little bits and segments of society alone. We actually have to include men as well. Um, and I'm very glad to see Lucas here from the State Department. Um, I think we also have to acknowledge and respect diversity, and make diversity an agent of change. And not in what I would call many of the discussions that I'm involved in with my, my colleagues and my peer group, that we end up talking to the converted. We're always agreeing with each other and saying, yeah, and this, and of course, yeah, no, no, no. And all we do is agree with each other. Um, but you know, where are the people who don't agree with us? And one of the things that I've learned over the years is that you must always acknowledge the minority voice those little things that aren't being spoken or aren't being heard. And I think we really do need to bring in the role that men can play in society because climate change affects everybody, and the responses to that are also um, heavily felt on men in impoverished situations and also men uh, in, in sort of first world contexts. The other thing I found in looking at a lot of these resort, res, uh, reports was that you can kind of encapsulate a lot of what's being said in an example that comes from the Asian tsunami of 2004. The statistics, statistics might vary depending on what you're looking at in terms of vulnerability or impacts of climate change, but essentially the predominance of loss of life are in, in the, the women's sort of category. Um, 70 to 80% of overall deaths in the tsunami were women. The statistics show that more women died than men because they stayed behind to rescue children and the elderly. So there is this, this um, societal construct that says, you know, women have to be looking after those who can't look after themselves. Um, it, it plays itself up, itself up over and over and over again. Women are less likely to have access to information about help or assistance. 
So again, it's not just the tsunami that this happened. It's in many other cases where you have a lack of access or even knowing that they could go and ask for information or that they're even allowed, they being women, to go out on their own to, to seek this information. Women are more vulnerable because of socially enforced roles and responsibilities. It's not just in Asia. More women may die because they can't swim uh, or they're not allowed to leave the house or have not been warned. And there have been a number of reports that I've seen where the effects of the tsunami recommend that we should start giving swimming lessons to women. Um, fair enough. But if you look at the kind of destruction that tsunamis or floods or any other sort of disaster involving water gives, if you see buses and cars and refrigerators barreling through this turbulent, dark water, um, well, maybe swimming will help you a little bit. But I don't think that that's the primary um, recommendation that should be sort of taken on board for disaster risk reduction. It has its use. But this basically shows over and over again the kind of issues that, that the vulnerable people in societies have to face. And uh, so that's a, a bit of a recap that I said I wasn't going to, to do. Now, the other side of the coin, and, and something that's very near and dear to my heart, is science, engineering, and technology. And like Catherine, I grew up in a very strong family, an engineer and military father, um, engineering brothers, and they never accepted the fact that as a genetic engineer, I was actually an engineer as well. But uh, four brothers and a, and a strong father later, um, I have an absolute passion and love for science and technology and the things that it can do and the fascination and the problem solving and the curiosity about it. But I'm going to use an example from a country that's um, also very near and dear to my heart because I moved to South Africa in 1992 and worked in the, um, the science and, and technology field down there for a number of years. The recent report came out uh, just in April of this year and it was a commission study looking at uh, science, engineering and technology in southern Africa, in the SADC region, Southern African Development uh, Commission. The report um, is a very plain-talking report, and I was really refreshed to see that. They finally said things that hadn't been said, particularly in an African context, and as a personal experience, a South African context, I thought, yes, way to go. But I still found that there was something missing. The report brought out some barriers, and I thought that was really great, because you don't often see this in reports, especially government-commissioned reports. They talked about barriers due to sort of things like masculinity, uh, symbolic association of masculinity and technology, misconception of women's socialization to be modified to the role of the engineer and not vice versa. Um, engineering fraternity involves homosocial performance that affirms masculinity. Quotations. They benefit from the power to create a work style comfortable to them as men. Okay? And women employees... Uh, cited examples of organizational culture that required them to be submissive, where managers had specific gendered expectations of professional employees. So the report from a Southern African context was very, very bold in saying, this is the situation. These are real barriers that we're experiencing, and we wrote this, and we sent it off to the government of uh, South Africa, the Science and Technology Department. And I thought, great, and I'm reading page by page. I think, yes, yes, this is really good, finally. And then they got to the part where they said, who's responsible? I thought, this is really good stuff. Okay. They talked about the receiving environment. Okay. Besides training in a workplace, a positive receiving environment for women is critical. Well done. 
A receiving environment gives women confidence that, they, that their work is recognized as females and as worthwhile in the workplace. In the same vein, now this is where I started to get worried, in the same vein, a woman must have the self-esteem, confidence, and knowledge of her worth enough to participate confidently and benefit from being in such an environment, or she must overcome an environment that is hostile, or if necessary, have the courage, and I would insert here grace, and self-belief to leave it purposefully in good, and in good time. <laughs> and I thought, hang on a sec here. <laughs> um, that, that just didn't resonate with me, or my life experience, or my experience in working in a lot of um, areas that, uh, yes, are very male-dominated and have a masculine sort of culture. So I said to myself, what's missing? And lo and behold, there's a section on the report that says what's missing. The missing element is what the individual woman can do to improve the situation. What can women do for themselves? What are women not doing for themselves that they could do? And why are they not doing what can be done? So essentially, the report said to me, well, you women aren't doing enough to help yourself. So even though you acknowledge that there are these barriers that involve those unnamed groups over there that we don't like to name called men, they, it's actually up to you to change that. Okay? It's actually up to you to do whatever you can to, to get beyond that or have the grace to leave. And um, that still doesn't sit well with me. So I asked myself, really? Is this, is this the kind of interpretation of gender in science, engineering, and technology and in the broader policy arena of things like environment and climate change and all the statistics that we've heard before um, my talk that, that leave us somehow to, to say that it's up to us and that men have absolutely no role in creating the enabling environment or the receiving environment to open up the incredible creativity and second, third, and fourth ways of looking at things. So I, I'm still questioning that. Um, you can read this off the, the, the screen, but essentially going back to the, the classic definitions of equality and equity, um, we have to ask ourselves, and perhaps you can take some of this up in your, in your groups, who controls the receiving environments, and what is it that we need to do to actually influence that? Um, and that they have an obligation to, to also create in terms of societal change. Why do we put the disproportionate burden of responsibility of change on women? Why do we do that? I, I don't understand. What is the impact of a changing world, including climate change, on men? There's a lot of evidence in the literature to show that climate change, you know, from a number of areas, whether it be drought, desertification, um, you know, loss of livelihood, whatever, stresses men enormously because of the societal expectations on men and then their reaction to, to cope. And I think we need to look at that a little bit closer. How are climate change impacts addressed and relevant to the diversity of global societies? Because there are some huge differences in global societies that we need to look at. I'll end off with a UN sort of position from uh, our Deputy uh, Secretary General. Oh, I left out the L. Sorry there, Asha Rose. After all, the promotion of gender equality is not solely a woman's issue. Men at all levels, particularly in leadership positions, have a special responsibility. So where are the men? And I took this picture from a very, very nice study that was done that, yes, it was um, the men's role and responsibility in curbing gender-based violence, but 
men do and should get together and, and talk about these sorts of things. They need that comfortable space as much as we do in this space here to discuss things that are very male-oriented. But at some point, you have to bring them together. The end. Okay. Does climate change need a climate change, a societal change of climate or mindset? Do we need to look at you know, gender issues separately? I don't think so. Um, kind of advice that perhaps I would impart is know who you want to influence in your fields, science, engineering, and technology, and then influence the influencers. So am I optimistic after all this? Of course. Uh, you can't help but be optimistic. Um, I think we, we can change. We did once, and we can do it again. My three wishes, and, and now this might sound off topic, but um, here they are. I've been sort of personally campaigning for this for a while now. Really, really think we've got to get rid of 20-liter you know, toilet tanks. Now, a lot of you who are scientists, engineers, and technologists will know that it's not just going and flushing your toilet. It has huge energy and water uh, impacts in terms of the amount of water we use for sanitation. And if you look at it from a technological perspective and a climate change perspective where you have water and rainfall patterns changing, water is going to be a huge, if not already, issue that we have to deal with under changing climate. And I don't think we should just demand more and more and more. I think we need to look at a few of the, the supply-side economics of how we can be more efficient. And if you just look at the numbers from 20 to 9 liters, you know, for heaven's sakes, even you have to, if you have to flush it twice, you're using less water. So I think that has a huge environmental potential impact, um, and I'm going to continue doing that. <laughs> Um, and that we also start a global movement engaging men as role models for peer groups and for younger men and boys in the pursuit of gender equity and equality. There are a lot of programs, such as the White Ribbon Campaign, which I'm sure you are all familiar with, um, and the UN's UNITE program that basically look at men's roles and responsibilities in, in gender-based violence. But this is broader. This is, this is from a broader societal perspective where we really, I believe, need to, to get peer groups, um, men, male role models challenging their own stereotypes of, of, of gender-based sort of sexism in the workplace, in the home, and whatever, and say, it's okay, you know, to do the laundry, you know, or whatever. So I think we really do need to, to get men to stand up and, uh, and say, look, we're prepared to change, and we're prepared to, to make more of, a, of an effort. And of course, being an optimist, um, and always wanting to sort of keep doors open, I'd like three more wishes. <laughs> So I'll leave it at that and hope that uh, I've left you with a few things to at least uh, give some thought to or to challenge or to, to debate in your uh, discussions later on the next day and a half. Thank you.